Timothy chapter 1. This was a sermon I preached at my daughter's baptism. I can't believe it was nine years ago. And um, I'm going to share it with you all this afternoon with the Lord's help. We're going to read from verse 12 to verse 16. The focus will be this memorable saying in the 15th verse. But beginning in verse 12, Paul writing to Timothy, his fellow worker, his son in the faith, whom he's left in Ephesus. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 15, again, will be the subject of the message. And the context of the verse is Paul's own personal testimony of God's grace to him in Christ Jesus. This is the position of every true gospel preacher to those who are unbelieving. You must understand this if you've not come to faith in Christ yet. That what I'm about to tell you I have done and what Christ can do for you He has done for me. I'm not here in this pulpit because I'm better than any of you. I'm not here because I can put words together and sometimes people like how they sound. And because God favors me. I am a hell-deserving sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. And this salvation that the Lord has blessed me with, He wants to bless you with as well. That's the whole spirit of Paul's writing. It's the whole spirit of Paul's preaching and and the whole spirit that he appeals to sinners from. And so it's not surprising we find this verse nestled in the context of his own personal testimony. The same God who graciously saves and blesses me is able to bless others. In fact, I'm an example to sinners. That's what he says here. That if God can save me, a persecutor of the church, an insolent man who went against the church and was a blasphemer, if he can save me, if his grace and his forgiveness can wipe my sins away, he can certainly do the same for you. Because I am what? The foremost of all sinners. 
So that's the desire Paul has in the preaching. It's the desire he would have for Timothy as he preached it. And it's, it's, it's our heartfelt desire as, as this church, I, I know this church well enough in my own heartfelt desire that you would hear the word of God without understanding. This is really, really good news. This is news that is true. It is absolutely reliable. Brethren, it's not just for the unconverted, but it's for us because day after day in this world, subtly and overtly through the news and the workplace, through the conversations we see on social media, through everywhere, we are being pressured to not believe there is absolute truth and to certainly not believe the gospel is true. And when we come into church, we ought to be hearing and being reminded, keep believing, keep persevering. The gospel is reliable. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and the only sinner by which we can be saved. Those things are true. Be encouraged to press on. And as we come to church, we should be reminded of this and be encouraged by the confidence of the Apostle as he's seeking to, again, encourage Timothy's faith. He's seeking to encourage his confidence. In essence, 1 Timothy really is a sermon that is preached to pastors to keep persevering, to keep holding on to this gospel. No matter the difficulty, no matter the opposition, no matter all the myths and fables that are going on in Ephesus, Keep preaching the gospel no matter how much they make fun of you. Really, the letter written to Timothy is a letter and a sermon written for pastors, but in it we get so much more for so many others. The first thing we'll make note, take note of in verse 15, as Paul writes, is the reliability of this saying. And I will say that my outline was taken from William Hendrickson, and I appreciate, I thank him for it, but the outline does come from him in his commentary. The reliability of this saying is the first thing in 15. He's writing to his fellow worker, Timothy. He's currently serving. Timothy is the churches in Ephesus. And there are people in these churches who are opposing the gospel. And Paul is encouraging his son in the faith to be faithful. In the face of error, Timothy is to keep believing the truth, first of all, and then contending for the truth. How is it that we have people standing up in pulpits in our country who don't even believe the truth they're professing to preach? We as preachers must believe what we're preaching before we stand up in the church. Or else it's no church at all. It's a synagogue of Satan. If the preacher doesn't believe, how are others ever going to believe it? Right? And that's what he says. He's encouraging him to keep believing and keep contending for the truth. There is no church work for people who do not believe. It's hard work. And Paul's writing to encourage him and to remind him of those things that are most important. The things we read of in 1 Timothy are most important things. We're to never compromise. They're not up for discussion They're not up for opinion. To be a Christian, you must believe what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 1.15. And if you don't believe it, you are yet unsaved and in your sins. These are not things that are negotiable. These are foundational things. 
Things that people must know. All people everywhere, no matter their background or culture, all people everywhere must know these things, believe in these things, and never stop believing. He introduces the message with words designed to grab Timothy's attention. And we all do this like those of you with kids and those of you who remember when kids were in your home and you were raising them and they say, Dad, Dad come here, God, i got to tell you. And they get real quiet and they bring you in. God, i got to tell you something. And then you, you pay attention. Or, you know, in our household, it's a very loud household. You know, you have to get people's attention. Guys, settle down. i, I got something important to say. And hopefully the kids settle down and they start to listen. And, and you really want people to absorb what you're about to communicate, to not be looking elsewhere, to not be sleeping, to certainly not be talking or texting or on their phones, but like get off of all of that, turn it off, turn off the world, and listen carefully to this statement. He's getting the attention of Timothy. Super serious. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says two things to make sure Timothy is paying attention. The saying is faithful. It is absolutely true. It's reliable. It can be counted on. It's a sure thing, non-negotiable, something that should absolutely be believed by all people everywhere. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's really a very packed phrase that speaks a lot about Jesus Christ, His person, and his main mission. We need to believe something about Jesus, who he is, and we need to believe what the primary mission of Christ in coming into the world was. If you're off on either of those two, you're in error and heresy. Who is Jesus? Absolutely critical and foundational to our faith and salvation. And what was his primary purpose in coming? Was it to do miracles? Was it to be a great prophet and teacher? Many people believe that about Jesus. They give him respect. They adore him because he was one of the greatest prophets the world has ever seen. That's not what this verse says. It doesn't say Christ Jesus came into the world to be the supreme prophet of all prophets. While he was the supreme prophet of all prophets, that was not his primary mission. His primary reason for coming was not to tell us more about God and reveal more about God, even though he did that. His primary mission, the most important reason he came into the world, was to save people who were on their way to hell. So if you don't believe in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, but you say you adore Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus, you're unsaved and still in your sin. In other words, Jesus didn't come in the world primarily to be a great example for us to follow like the liberal churches preach. 
or to do miracles, like it seems in some charismatic circles, that's the main focus of attention. And without miracles, forget it. Like, you know, you're no church at all. He didn't come primarily to feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He didn't come primarily to feed bellies. He came to give the food that endures unto eternal life. He came to save people from our sins. So much truth packed into this statement that is faithful. It's not an optional thing you can believe. It's not something Paul is writing at the end of his news as an op-ed. You know what op-eds are? The opinions, right? It's not necessarily the news, but the opinion of a news writer on the news. This isn't an opinion of Paul. This is a faithful saying. It's in the category of absolute, undeniable truth. And here's the big idea, too. It's not true simply if people believe it. It's true whether they believe it or not. And the church, you brethren, as individuals and as a church, can never sacrifice your belief in this truth. Or else you will completely forfeit your right to be called the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church of Jesus Christ, as Paul is going to say to Timothy, is the pillar and the support of the truth. This is the incredibly grieving thing these days, is people can walk into so-called churches and not hear the truth. And a lot of people in the world get deceived by that. Deceptive synagogues of Satan. And they will give an answer to Jesus. The saying, he says also, is worthy to be accepted. When people hear this saying, this teaching, this statement, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, Paul says, this statement is worthy to be believed. We can never forget that. We get so discouraged, I get discouraged. Where are all the converts? How many times are we going to preach? And people are yet unsaved. Man, it brings me to tears. It brings me to tears when there's so much rejection of the truth, so much rejection of the gospel, so much disbelief in the gospel. We're reminded this afternoon, this saying is worthy of all acceptation. Never stop believing that. I'm preaching to myself right now. So I've come this afternoon to preach to myself, to encourage myself as I go out into the world, as I live my life on a daily basis with these things. They should believe it, even though they don't. It deserves to be believed. It's so valuable and precious. It's fitting that we believe it. It's right for you to believe it. In other words, you're not a weirdo if you believe it. You're actually a weirdo if you don't believe it. Why wouldn't you believe this? That's the disposition we should have as believers. Why wouldn't you believe this? Your own heart is a witness to the things I'm telling you that these things are true. Your own conscience testifies to you that what I'm saying isn't off the wall, that it makes sense. In fact, if you're honest with yourself, that's really why it disturbs you. Because it's like the boom box on Sinai reminding you that there is a God and He has a law and you've broken it. Why wouldn't you believe? 
People should believe this. This is what Paul's saying to Timothy. This is the disposition you need to have when you pastor, when you preach, when you engage one-on-one with Ephesians and others. Workers deserve to be paid. Criminals deserve to be punished. This statement deserves to be accepted because it's absolutely, positively, and without a doubt true. The saying is worthy of all acceptance. In other words, it's something that every person who has ever lived in the past, every person who's ever living now, or every person who ever is going to live, like universal, every single human being born into this world should believe this. This is a message every single individual human being, in other words, needs to hear. This is a message every, for whom every single human being, this message is relevant, of supreme importance. If they didn't hear anything else in their lifetime or believe anything else, they need to hear this, they need to believe this. It's worthy of universal acceptance. And here where, again, I love the scriptures because it's so refreshing to be reminded of the fact that really the differences between us as human beings are very small in God's eyes. Because God looks down from heaven and what does he want to judge? How many white people, black people there are? How many inherently good people or bad people? He looks down from heaven to see if there are any black or white, Asian, Hispanic, Western, whatever you want to call them, whatever descriptions you want to place upon them, if there are any who do good. And he says, no, they have all fallen short of the glory of God. They have all gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. Each of us has a fundamental need to be forgiven of their sins. Think through the noise. Think through the confusion of the wokeness we're living in. And the corporate equity that they're trying to achieve. We're all the same part of the one human race. All coming from Adam. All in Adam we've sinned. All in Adam we fall short. All in Adam we need Jesus Christ. And guess what? This is a message that God wants all to hear. Without discrimination. Because it's worthy of universal acceptance. Because it applies to all of us. Church. Universally. Right? Every single one of us. So it's so important as we preach it and as the church leans across the pulpit and from our hearts speaks to each of you hearing this message. It's for all of you. It's not simply for people Paul wrote to 2,000 years ago. Something for people in every generation, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. It's not just something for churchgoers or the religious, 
but it's for all. Brethren, it's not just for non-Christians to hear and become Christians. It certainly is for that, but it's for Christians. It's for you and I, too, as I've said. Christians often doubt their salvation and dispute at times whether they can be saved. Or we doubt the message because nobody seems to believe it and be saved. And when we face those seasons of, of individual personal doubt, I like what Calvin says about this verse, quoting him, Wherefore, whenever any doubt shall arise in our mind about the forgiveness of sins, let us learn to repel it courageously with this shield. Take this verse up like a shield when those thoughts come against you, that it is an undoubted truth and deserves to be received without controversy. There is forgiveness with God. And this verse forms a shield by which we can extinguish and fight off the fiery darts of the devil. Any temptation to think otherwise. This is a message for people in this world as well who doubt anything is really or absolutely true. I mean, this is one of the few places on earth you're going to hear pastors preach and individuals speak with one another with absolute certainty and with passion because we're dealing with stuff that is absolutely true in our culture which could still be called postmodern there's nothing that can be truly believed nothing's absolutely true and can be trusted who are you Adam to tell me this is absolutely... Don't you feel that pressure in the culture? It's okay to talk about your truth as long as you don't talk about it as a universal truth worthy of all acceptation. This isn't just about me and for me, my friend. This is for you, right? That's when you start to walk on thin ice. Because you're transgressing the doctrine of our world that says, no, there isn't anything to be absolutely believed. There isn't anything that's absolutely true. And this is a lie of the devil. Now, not everything we hear in this world is absolutely true, but that doesn't mean absolute, reliable, trustworthy things don't exist. This statement saying, this teaching Paul says is absolute truth. It can be trusted. You can base your life upon it, believe it, teach it. Just as 2 plus 2 equals 4, I think it still equals 4 in the world even. Murder and lying is wrong, no matter what the world thinks. Jesus came to save sinners. Something, therefore, you must absolutely know and believe. The content of this saying is we sit and listen to the apostle. He's got our attention. We're waiting to hear eagerly what it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The subject is, of course, Christ Jesus. And there's three important words that unpack and describe for us who Jesus is. He is the Christ. That's a descriptive name for Jesus of Nazareth. He is the long-anticipated Christ, the Anointed One. 
When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the gospel writers tell us of the Spirit of God. He was seen coming down upon Jesus after his baptism like a dove. The Spirit-filled man, the Spirit filled the man, Jesus. He was anointed and strengthened to do the work he came to do. At the same time, they tell us, an audible voice was heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It was the voice of God the Father from heaven recognizing Jesus as the Christ and approving the Holy Spirit's anointing of Jesus to save sinners, to do His mission. Jesus believed Himself He was the Christ. One Sabbath day, He goes into a synagogue, takes a scroll, reads from it, Luke 4. 18 through 19, we read of the account, the Spirit of the Lord. This is Jesus reading to worshipers in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. These are all descriptions of what it means to save sinners. He sent me, He's anointed me for this work. And as He's speaking from the scroll, He's clearly telling these people that these verses are speaking about me. To sit at liberty, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After reading it, we read He rolled it back up and basically said to everyone, this is about me. He believed He was the Christ. And that His main mission for being born, living in this world, was to save sinners from their sin. This is why I'm here. This is the main reason I've been anointed. I'm the only one who could be anointed. I'm the only one who qualifies to do this work of saving sinners. Not just anybody can do it. It's a work that's difficult and hard and beyond our ability to find anyone in the world to do it. In order for us to be saved, God the Son had to come down from heaven to do this work. And all of the scriptures are pointing to the Christ to come and do it. And this is the work primarily He came to do. And we never can be confused about this. Because it's tied to so many other fundamental truths. The greatest problem we have is sin. Sin, sin, sin. As individuals, it's not outside of us. It's not the politicians. It's not the economics. It's not Russia. It's not any of this. The greatest problem we have to deal with as individuals and as a country and as a world is our sin problem. And this greatest problem, Jesus says of himself, I've been anointed to take care of. And you who are captive, human race, I've come to set you free. What would it have been like to be in that synagogue with believing eyes and believing hearts? We would have fallen at his feet and kissed him. And we would have worshipped and said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that experience must have just... Most of them, I probably, most all of them missed it. But what a powerful moment. You know, it's amazing how so many people can tell you who Jesus was and what he was like. 
but they fail to, I don't know, take into account what Jesus thought of himself and what he said about himself, what he believed about himself. Here we see he clearly believed he was the Christ. He calls him Jesus, Paul does in his description. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's he talking about when he calls him Jesus? Well, of course, that's his name. Well, I think he's pointing to the fact of the fact that he's Jesus of, of Nazareth, a human being on earth that people knew, that people talked to, that people observed, that people heard preach and speak. And, and they saw this man, Jesus of Nazareth, grow up under Joseph's tutelage and learn how to be a carpenter. And maybe Jesus of Nazareth, one family remembers how, oh yeah, he built my parents' house. Oh yeah, he built the, the, you know, the plow that, that my parents used to, to provide food for us. This was a real individual, a human being. And he's pointing here to the humanity of Jesus. That he was a real man. Born unusually of the Virgin Mary. But he had a real body with veins filled with real blood. A soul that could worship God and be inwardly moved. A real childhood, a real experience. Learning and growing up. He had real brothers and sisters. Held down a real job. Paul says that Jesus lived among us as a man. This man was anointed to save sinners. Now the last description here. Okay, is the one that causes all kinds of controversy. Jesus Christ, okay, man anointed. We can all accept that. Came into the world to save sinners. Now, what does that mean? You just said he was born. Well, he was born of Mary, but in one sense he came into the world. This is why you, Jesus is uniquely suited to accomplish this mission. He's pointing to the fact that before Jesus was born as a man, he eternally existed as God. He didn't simply come by leaving heaven and entering earth. He came into the world by becoming a human being, never changing who he was, Conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary to become what he never was. I mean, if this thought doesn't blow your mind, may the Spirit of God join it and blow your mind. That the eternal Son of God, in order to save sinners, would be born into the world as a man, would be a baby. And he would live among sinners. And he would be treated as he would be treated. And he would be disbelieved as he was disbelieved. And he would be mocked as he would be mocked. And he would be hung upon a cross and shamefully hung there. The eternal Son of God was willing to do that in order to accomplish our salvation, in order to accomplish the salvation of sinners. Mind-blowing. And I'll tell you why. Because... You know, I read Isaiah 6 this week. And we know that Isaiah from John, John tells us Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus in all of his glory. He saw him in his pre-incarnate glory. A 
upon a throne. In Isaiah 6, you can read about it. And the throne filled the temple. And Isaiah was filled with fear. And he saw these glorious, beautiful, wonderful angels worshiping the one upon the throne. And we learn later that he got a vision of Jesus and his pre-incarnate glory and excellence and the angels of heaven all worshiping him and falling down before him and crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. Worshiped of angels. He leaves that to become a man. And think about all the gospel accounts you know by heart. This is the thing. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. And he's not just anointed. But he came into the world. The eternal son of God who always was became a man. Something he never was. In order to save us. And the word became flesh, John tells us. John believed it. And he preached it. The Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Paul says Jesus is a man by this statement. He's also God who came into the world. And He was anointed for a very important foundational mission that is relevant to every human being that's ever existed. Their salvation. Your salvation. Are you saved today? Are you saved yet by Jesus Christ? Are you a recipient of the saving work of Jesus Christ? Are you a benefactor? In your soul, does your soul respond to me right now and say, Adam, yes. Mr. Davies, yes. Yes! Thank you, Jesus. This is a true statement worthy of all acceptation. It's trustworthy. This is why he came. This was his main mission. Who did he come to save? Verse tells us sinners. Again, I'm sorry, it's another sticking point for people in our world. Most people in our country do not believe they're sinners. Not pretty good people. They don't believe they're perfect. Throw them a bone. Okay, right? We can't find many people in the world who actually think and would tell you. Oh yeah, you know, my name's Adam. Congratulations, you've met perfect today. No. Most people know they're not perfect. But it's another thing to call them a sinner. I pay my taxes. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I've never been in jail. You know, yeah, I speed, right? whatever, you know. You know the line, the way people think of themselves. I go to church. I'm not like them. This is the hard part about the gospel. And it's the part of the gospel we can't ever sacrifice. Human beings are born into the world with a huge problem. They're sinners. They're fallen in Adam. The Bible explains the reason. Adam was a representative in the garden. Yes, Adam's real. He's not a fairy tale that teaches truth about God. He was a real historical individual. He was the first man created by God from the dust. He was given instructions. 
every tree you can eat of. But this tree, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We know from Paul and others, Adam was our representative in the garden. What he did, we would do. And unfortunately, he sinned, which means the whole human race, no matter your ethnic background, gender, don't matter. Age, all of us in Adam fell when he fell. And we all are born, therefore, totally depraved. We don't seek good. We don't seek God by nature. We don't go out after God. In fact, we have this broken nature that goes out after everything that's against God. We don't want to know God. We don't want Him in our life. By nature, that's what all of us are like. That's the people He came to save. Sinners. To deal with the world's greatest problem. He didn't come to feed the hungry primarily, heal the sick. He certainly did those things. Make the poor rich. Give them their best life now. There's garbage, false, satanic gospel being proclaimed by smiling devils. Trash. He ultimately, supremely came to save us from sin. The world made by God was good, but that all changed when Adam sinned. He didn't come to save those sinners out there. He came to save sinners in here. Thank God, because I'm one of them, a sinner saved by grace. Not just before I was saved. But I have remaining sin I need to be saved from, even as a Christian. You know, believer, he died for your remaining sin as a believer. Because your remaining sin as a believer is worthy of the cross. Thank you, Jesus. We're washed in your blood. Thank you. We all have sinned. This is what the Bible says. This is undeniable, foundational, absolute truth. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Romans 5.12, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All sinned. We live in a broken world, a sick world, a place of suffering, murder, war, disease, death, We can be thankful as Americans we've been spared suffering. Maybe, I don't know, maybe suffering would do us good. But you get the point. We've been blessed. You children have been blessed. Do you realize, children, there are refugee Ukrainian children living in Europe who will probably never hear what happened to their father, their neighbors, their grandparents who were too weak to make the trek out of Ukraine. They will never know the names of human beings made in the image of God. Buried like dirt in mass graves. Millions of people who have fled that country. Or the starvation going on in Ethiopia, you probably never hear of it. Some of you may not even know about it through the civil war going on there. And the starvation because the cutoff of supplies that has killed hundreds of thousands of people literally starving to death. The world is not a fun place. It's a place of suffering. And then there are other forms of suffering we can't avoid like cancer. Right now that's my responsibility. And my job is to represent products that help people with cancer. 
it's very sad, my job, because anyone who's prescribed any of my drugs, it's the worst day of their life because they're not going to survive. And thankfully, some of my products may give someone five years instead of 12 months, but they're going to die of their disease. And cancer, don't matter what the economics or the political situation it is that we're in, we had one of our family just pass away this past week. It's an insidious disease, but it's here. You know why cancer is here? Because of sin. Cancer came into the world on the back of sin. You hate cancer, you don't like cancer? You want to truly hate it? Hate sin, because sin's the ultimate cause of all the grief and suffering and pain and disease that we experience, and ultimately sin is the reason we all die. We weren't born to die. We were born to live forever. The only reason we die and our bodies are separated from our souls is because of that three-letter word, sin. It's such a problem. It's the greatest problem. And it's the main reason Jesus came into the world. Aren't you thankful Jesus just didn't come into the world to relieve hunger? Or to give us a circus show of miracles. That's not what Jesus thought when he did them, but it's what many look back upon the gospel writings, and I feel, I fear, are most thankful for. Display of miraculous shows to tantalize the entertaining itch of men. No, he came into the world to do something far greater, far more difficult, something only he could do. He could do. You see, we may be able to relieve hunger. We may be able to come up with drugs that extend life. We may be able to send money to help refugees from the suffering they're going through. We may be able to send arms and, 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 and boots on the ground, clothing. We can do all that. But there's one thing we can't do. We can't take people's sin away. So the greatest thing we could do is point people to the one who can. Amen? And it's a trustworthy statement. It's worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners I love to tell a story. It did so much for me. Jesus and his glory. Oh, boy. So we close with some applications. He doesn't speak of something abstract like man. But Paul speaks of something he feels. Something he has personal knowledge of. Feeling himself a sinner on the road to Damascus. Terrified in the presence of Jesus. Hearing those words from Jesus. Soul, soul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine hearing those words if you were Saul? Like, I'm a dead man. I'm just shaking in my boots. And then he has mercy on me. I deserve to go to hell. I feel my sense of sin. I've been persecuting the Lord. 
He says, Lord, Adonai. He recognizes that the person who's come to him is God. Adonai, who are you? I am Jesus. Jesus had mercy on Paul. He spiritually felt his sense of sin before God and his need of salvation, his need of forgiveness. He couldn't look back to his life. He was persecuted in the church in the name of God. Completely wrong, mistaken, but sinful nevertheless. Deserved to be damned, deserved to be sent to hell that minute. He felt that. He's speaking out of something he's experienced, something he has a taste of. And he says, even to this day, as he's writing to Timothy, he still, as a Christian, has an acute awareness, a feeling, a sense, spiritual sense of the sinfulness of his sin, even as an apostle. Right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the greatest. He's not just saying, I was the greatest. I am the greatest. Even as a Christian, you feel your sense of need of the fountain filled with blood. Don't you, brethren? And he still has mercy on us. This is what God does when he saves you. He makes you feel through the presence of his spirit and your own soul, sinfulness of sin. And this is the heartfelt thought of every Christian, every true believer. They're not preoccupied with the sins of others because they can't look past their own sin. remembers the kind of man he was, persecuted the church. I was there when they stoned godly Stephen. I was hunting Christians down, dragging men and women away to prison, involved in the killing of others. Before radical Islam existed, radical Judaism existed. That's what we read of in the first century. All the while thinking he was doing service to God. God saved me. His main mission in sending His Son into the world was to save lost sinners. Why shouldn't you sleep through this message? Why shouldn't your hearers sleep through this message, Timothy? Because this saying is trustworthy. Worthy of all acceptance. You know, you little kids need to hear this message. You need to receive it and believe it. It's for you. That's why your parents bring you here. It's not just because they go here and you have to go because they go and they're going to listen but you don't have to listen. They want you here listening on the edge of your seat to every word preached in Sunday school by the pastors because this message is for you. It's for you teenager. It's for you college student. It's for you recent graduate, postgraduate student. doesn't matter. Medical school, Hudson Valley community, doesn't matter. Male, female, doesn't matter. Black, white, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're all human beings with the same problem, sin, in need of the same Savior. That's why Jesus came. If people don't understand that about who Jesus is, they don't understand Jesus. They're preaching a false Jesus. His main mission is what we're speaking of here. All of the other things he did were to help us believe this was his main mission. All of the miracles, and the thing, including the resurrection, were done so that we would believe this, that he did this to redeem us from our sin. And the only way it could be done 
was by the God-man dying upon the cross and taking upon him the wrath that you and I, our sin deserves, so that our sin could be forgiven and living a perfect life, only one who could do it, so that we could be given that perfect righteousness and before God be forgiven and saved and go to heaven when he comes or if he doesn't come when we die. It's a trustworthy statement. It's something I pray I'll never get tired of preaching. We'll never get tired of hearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message that is given to all who are here and to those especially who have not believed it. We pray you would pour out the Holy Spirit and add them to the church spiritually, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus, that you would give them a felt sense of their own sinfulness and of their need of Christ and of an assurance that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. He is freely offered in the gospel to all, and all who call upon him will never be disappointed. We pray there would be some who do that today. And then we pray you would again establish in us in our faith in Jesus and of all of the things your word says about him. May we never compromise this about Christ, that he came into the world to save sinners, among whom we are chief. Help us to always live in that shadow and live at the foot of the cross. To your praise and glory, we give you thanks for this indescribable an amazing gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.